The Gospel of John uh, is a unique gospel. In fact, we even know from the standpoint of its writing that it's uh, different than the other three that sometimes we refer to as the synoptic gospels. John's gospel was written almost a generation after the other biographies of Jesus. Uh, And I think uh, his presentation as well, very unique. Uh, John does not uh, attempt to present a detailed chronological uh, description of Jesus' life. Uh, In fact, what he does is picks out uh, relatively few of the events of Jesus' life uh, until he gets to the end, and then he gives us more of a detailed description uh, of the the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus than any of the other Gospels. But the purpose of John's writing, he tells us right in the text itself. Uh, In John chapter 1, in verse 14... Uh, John starts with what I think is really the the proposition uh, of his whole writing. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The John's proposition is that Jesus, the Son of God, came, lived in the flesh. uh, And that through him we could see God. And that he calls individuals to believe in the identity of Jesus. Uh, He relates to us the, the witness of John the baptizer. Uh, that there was one who come and said, uh, I am not him, but there's one who is coming who is preferred before me, of whose sandals I am not, uh, I am not worthy to, uh, to lace. And he says in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So that's the presentation, or that's the proposition of John's presentation here in this gospel, is that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we go through and as we study through the, the book, what we recognize is that John begins and ends with that. If you fast forward to the last ch- uh, chapter of John, John chapter 20, um, the end of the book, in chapter 20, verse 30, uh, John says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John lays it out pretty clearly. Uh, He starts out by telling us who Jesus is from the beginning of the beginnings. Jesus is pre-incarnate state and says he was with God and he was God. Uh, And that you must believe this because he's come into flesh. And then you go to the end and you recognize he ends his gospel by saying that I've presented all the evidence that needs to be presented. And I think that's somewhat what he's saying. He's not just telling us there were more events that he doesn't write down. That would be obvious, I think, to any of his readers that John's Gospel wasn't a full account of every event. But what he's really presenting here is this is the conclusive is the conclusion that he has presented enough evidence for you to believe. There's nothing that's left out that's going to be crucial because though he did many other signs, these are written in the book so that you might believe. Uh, this is enough. Now, is it enough? For us to believe who Jesus is. Uh, in between those sections, John, I think, relates a number of significant miracles that Jesus performed. And probably we can relate to the miracles of John, maybe then the other Gospels as well. Going along, as we said this morning, with the I Am statements of Jesus. There are seven major miracles uh, that are presented by John in his Gospel. And there's an interaction of teaching between those miracles that all point to the aspect of who Jesus is. He concludes then, as we mentioned, with a very lengthy discussion of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He provides a detailed look at the days just before Jesus' death where he spoke with his apostles, gives us more information about that teaching period uh, and the preparation of the apostolic mission than any of the other Gospels in chapter 12 for 20. 
And then you see there is this, uh, there he is his great details into the resurrection day. And then, as we mentioned, he closes by saying, this is enough evidence. And what we recognize as well, when we look at what, he, what is prominent in the gospel, that that's certainly true. The miracles stand for themselves as evidence of who Jesus is. But what I want to do tonight is look at something that I think maybe is an evidence of the, of the identity of Jesus that may be uh, a little more subtle. It may be easily overlooked by us because it's, it's contained within the context and the teachings about other more uh, visible, manifest miracles of Jesus that, are, that John presents as proof. I want to consider what sometimes is maybe an unseen or at least an unmentioned evidence of the divinity of Jesus, beginning in John chapter 1, uh, and retracing what happens here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. As we mentioned, John the Baptist is presented as a witness to the identity of Jesus. He'd seen the Spirit descend upon the Lord at his baptism, and he notes that this was a sign given to him so that he could identify who Jesus was. And then John tells us that on, uh, that on two consecutive days, that John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him, gathering at Barthraba, and he says there, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, in, chapter, in verse 29, and then again in verse 36 of chapter 1. That prompted two of the disciples of, uh, to seek out Jesus, two of John's disciples, to seek out Jesus. And it tells us there at the end, in verse 38 and 39 that he spent some time with these two disciples. At the conclusion of that particular interview, Andrew, one of those disciples, is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he goes and finds his brother Simon and he introduces him to Jesus. And this, of course, is the, is the introduction of one that we know as Peter. Jesus changes his name from Simon to Cephas or, or Peter in, chapter, in verses 40 and 42. And then the passages that, that uh, Joe read for us just a few moments ago come into play. And that is on the following day that Jesus wants to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and he says to him, follow me. Now, Philip could very well have been the other disciple that's mentioned earlier in the book. That's, very, that's, that's certainly a possibility. But Philip is one then who is willing then to, uh, to uh, go with Jesus into Galilee. Uh, but in the context of this, you see, he goes and he finds Nathanael and he brings him to Jesus. And, he, and when Nathanael first hears about this, He's sort of incredulous to the fact that the Messiah, that that that, that, uh, and, that Andrew has really found, uh, that Philip has really found the Messiah. And he says, "Could any good thing come out of Nazareth? Could this really be the one?" Certainly, Nazareth is not the place. Not only have a bad reputation, but it didn't fit the bill as far as the prophecies of the birth of the Messiah uh, had made known. And so he's skeptical. And it's interesting that Philip's answers, I think, is right on target. He says, "Well, you come and see." <laughs> You know, they'll take my word for it. Come and see. This this has to be something. This has to be a faith you establish on the evidence as you see the evidence yourself. And so Philip then brings Nathaniel to Jesus, and Jesus greets Nathaniel in verse forty-seven, and he greets to him, and he says, "This is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit." And Nathaniel questions Jesus about his knowledge of him. Nathaniel said to him, "How do you know me?" Jesus answered and said, "That behold." Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Now, Nathanael's words here are very important for us to see. Not only because Nathanael says the right thing about the identity of Jesus, but because this is one of the earliest 
clearly the earliest confession that's made of Jesus and anywhere in the Gospels. And that John's putting this here for a reason for us to see how the evidence has produced the right result. He's going to do that several times. There are, going to, there are several confessions of who Jesus is throughout the ministry based upon different kinds of evidence. But Nathaniel, she leads that list here when he says that Jesus is, you see, uh, the Son of God and He is the King of Israel. He got it right, didn't he? Exactly who Jesus was. And he got it right based upon this aspect of evidence. Well, what was the evidence that caused Nathaniel to make this, uh, this profound uh, confession of who Jesus was? Well, what it tells us in the text, you see, is that Jesus said, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, what does it suggest to you that what's presented here in almost a subtle way as an evidence of the identity of Jesus is this aspect of Jesus' knowledge. That Jesus knows who Nathanael is. That Jesus sees this before you see anyone could ever know it. Sometimes we call this omniscience and it is itself a divine quality. Certainly God of heaven is omniscient. He knows all things. Yet how do you portray omniscience in a human person? Jesus has come in the flesh. How, how is omniscience made known? If you're going to talk about omnipotence and power, then you could walk on water or you could raise the dead or you could heal the sick. But, and we see that very visibly. But a defined quality that's clearly brought out, you see, in this is that Jesus is God and he makes it known by the fact that he can see these things. And that's something, I think, that we see, not only in this single event here, but what we're going to notice is that that quality in a sort of subtle way, just keeps coming back up again. It would appear that the events of this section, you see, have even this singular concept in view as we go through it, that Jesus has unlimited knowledge of the things that are going on around Him. The second chapter ends in this very way. After the water-to-wine miracle in Cana, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And it says, Many believed in Him when they saw the signs. Verse 23. And then it tells us there that now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in Him when they saw the signs which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. And He had no need that anyone should testify of man for He knew what was in man. Now there it is sort of spelled out for us from the standpoint of this aspect of Jesus' ability to know. What this language seems to point out is that Jesus is unwilling to put any confidence in the fact that there were those who said they believed in Him because they saw the miracles, because He saw beyond the surface. They may have been saying that they believed, they may have been joyously maybe rejoicing over what He did, enthusiastic about the fact that Jesus was there. But Jesus saw below the surface and He recognized they were not really committed to Him based upon certainly what Jesus expected in terms of faith. And so the language seems to me that seems to mean that Jesus knew the reality of their trust. He knew how deep it was, or maybe more to the point, how shallow it may have been. And he was unwilling to reveal too much to them. He was unwilling to make himself so known to them, maybe because they had expectations that you see Jesus was unwilling to latch himself onto in terms of his ministry. They thought he was going to be something that he wasn't really going to be, though he was going to put himself out there when he knew what they were thinking. Now that's what's involved here, isn't it? That he knew what they were thinking. That the last phrase there that he says, he had no need that anyone should testify of man, is interpreted to mean that Jesus didn't have to rely upon other people's testimony. Now, you have to and I have to, don't you? 
Well, what were you thinking? Tell me. How can I know what you were thinking unless you tell me? Or even if we look at it from the standpoint of hearsay, someone could say, well, I know what he was thinking because he told me, and now let me tell you. Jesus did not have to rely upon the testimony of one man towards another. Well, why not? It says, for he knew what was in man, verse 24 and 25. Now, that's an almost incredible affirmation about the character and the ability of Jesus of Nazareth. How could one person know everybody? What you think, what you like, your dispositions, your attitudes, your thoughts, your feelings, your inclinations, your aspirations, your strengths, your weaknesses. Is there, is there a single person that knows all those things about you? You know, we might be inclined to think that and convince ourselves that there is another person who knows us as much, maybe as much as we know ourselves. Maybe our mate or a close friend that, yeah, we just think just alike. We're right on the same page all the time. And I know what he's thinking. He knows what I'm thinking. But that's not what's being said here. What's being said about Jesus is that he knew all men. Individuals you see from all different backgrounds in any circumstance. And such an element of the character of Jesus Christ defies imagination. And what I want us to notice here is that Jesus, John gives this evidence of this divine quality of Jesus on several occasions. And it's almost overlooked in the context sometimes of the other miracles that John records, maybe because we sort of just pass it off and say, well, Jesus was God. And certainly that's what the conclusion God wants, the Lord wants us to, bring, to, to, to come to in that regard. But I think sometimes we're too cavalier about to pass off what John is presenting to here as profound evidence. And Jesus' knowledge might be explained away sometimes in other ways. You know, well, somebody told him. Maybe he did know because of somebody gave him that information. And certainly that's true. But there are other occasions in which we recognize that what Jesus knew was undeniable proof and implications that he was divine. Consider this uh, as we go as we look at this that, uh, of the things that Jesus knows beforehand in John chapter four verse one Jesus knew that the Pharisees were aware that he that of his growing influence uh, and the, even the fact of how many people he was baptizing or supposedly baptizing in chapter four verse seventeen and eighteen you have correctly said I don't have a husband you see Jesus says to the Samaritan woman uh, for you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband what have you said what you have said is true. And that amazed her. In fact, she made another confession based again on what? Based on the same evidence that Nathaniel did earlier. Because Jesus was able to read her heart, to tell her what, to see what she had done in the past and where she'd been and how many husbands she'd had and even to some extent maybe what she was thinking. Jesus knew. He healed the nobleman's son from almost 25 miles away knowing that the effectiveness of his miracle would take place down to the very hour. He called upon that man to have that faith as well. He knew the paralyzed man in Jerusalem had been in that condition for a very long time. In John chapter 6, Jesus knew the crowd was preparing to make him a king by force and therefore he withdrew himself. He also knew that those who had followed him to the other side of Capernaum were, were, were there because he'd fed them. Verse 26. He knew why they were there. He knew that his disciples were put off by the teaching and he knew which ones would desert him. You're, some of you are going to stay, but one of you is a devil. In John chapter 7, verse 1, he knew the authorities were seeking to kill him. In John chapter 8, in the first nine verses there, he knew the evidence, the, the, the motives of those who brought the woman in adultery before him. He knew their hearts and he knew what they were trying to do. And therefore, he reacted based upon the fact that he knew. 
John chapter 9, he knew why the man in the temple had been born blind. A question that perplexed individuals for generations that they as well asked Jesus about, that they couldn't answer themselves, Jesus knew. In John chapter 11, he knew that Lazarus had died. Without any evidence that he had someone to tell him that Lazarus had died, he knew what the circumstances were. In fact, I believe that he had set the stage for that very circumstance. In John chapter 13, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. He also knew that Peter would betray him and would deny him three times before the morning broke. Jesus knew all of those things. And then in John chapter 20, one of the amazing, I think, elements of this particular story of Thomas, the one who demands the evidence, is that Jesus knew the specific demand that Thomas made in order to accept the fact of his resurrection before Thomas evenly ever told him about it. And here is the one who is demanding evidence, and Jesus is making clear to him, well, here's the evidence. I'm not going to withhold this from you, nor even scold you, because you want evidence. That's what this is all about, is faith based upon evidence. And then finally, in John chapter 21, Jesus knows that the disciples would be successful if they would just cast their nets on the other side of the boat. He goes on to describe to Peter the circumstances of his late life, and how ultimately, you see, his life would end differently than the life of the Apostle John. So over and over again, you see, there is this element of the knowledge of Jesus. And some of these, as I mentioned, some of these you may say, well, I think I know why he knew that, or or, I've always looked at it this way, and that may be true. But I think we can't overlook the fact that what John is presenting in this Gospel is a running line of clear evidence that Jesus' ability to know individuals and to look into the hearts of individuals was a divine characteristic that was to bring about the results of individuals confessing who Jesus was, just as Nathaniel did, just as the woman at the well did. And it brings to our mind why this was so impressive. Because it truly is a divine characteristic that someone could know these things. It's beyond our comprehension to understand the qualities of God, is it not? We, we cower at God's uh, uh, omnipotence, the aspect of that He's so powerful, I can't fathom a power that can just speak words and bring things into existence, that can, you see, control the entire physical universe, that can bring a, a dead person back to life again. That's power, you see, that's unfathomable to us. We're amazed at the wisdom that's manifested in the creation around us. The way things work together the geological, biological, astronomical, and atomic power and wisdom that where everything works together. The various laws that we discover that we're so thrilled with that God, you see, originated at the beginning of creation and has a complete control of. And I stand in awe at the character of God. But God's not just a little bit holy. He's absolutely holy and constantly righteous in every way. Completely just. Always loving. All of those things that we recognize as being the good qualities of God. He has them not just a certain degree. He, you see, defines them by His character. And Jesus was all of that. But then there is this aspect, you see, of His omniscience. That God knows all things. I would submit to you that this is so perplexing to us as human beings that it lays the groundwork for some of the the most, you see, uh, difficult things for us to explain about revelation, about what God reveals to us. God's attempt 
not say attempt, but certainly God does reveal to us His mind through the words of the Spirit. Tells us what He's doing and what He has done and what He plans on doing. He makes known His intentions and all, even His obligations and yet contained within that, that, that revelation of God brought down to our level are some of the most perplexing things you, can, you and I can ever consider. And that is how could God possibly hold someone responsible for something that he said that he had already planned before time began. That these things were in motion that could not be stopped and yet God holds people personally responsible for participating in the evil that was a part of those things. How can we, you see, in any way reconcile the absolute, complete knowledge of God with the free will choices that he gives men? Sometimes that baffles us, does it not? And I think what we have to recognize is that one reason that it is baffling is because you and I cannot possibly put our little minds around the aspect of someone who knows everything. Because we're always in the process of learning. And there's always more to learn. And there's always so much that we do not know. Whether we talk about scientific knowledge or whether we talk about, you see, what lies within the heart of a man and what somebody else is thinking. And yet Jesus breaks all of those barriers and broke all of those barriers as He walked upon the earth with His disciples. As someone who is walking in the, one of the poorest places of the earth without any, without any political power, without any prestige among men. He had no political, he, he had no personal property that He could assess to. He had no army to lead. He was just a man walking around in Galilee and yet He knew everybody. Everything that they did. And that's how John presents this evidence. And we ought to be humbled by that. Because when we think about that, what we recognize is that if we're going to understand the fact that Jesus knows, there's, it demands that we take this personally. It can't just be assigned to this aspect of, well, that's a quality of God and Jesus was God. What we have to recognize is that when Jesus says that He knew all men, that that includes me. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29 Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now that's proverbial, isn't it? Let me suggest to you that's literal. That's a metaphor. But it's a literal metaphor because there is the ability for God to know exactly how many hairs you have on your head. And not just your head. Everybody's head. So this knowledge is, you see, absolutely comprehensive. And what I recognize in all of that is who am I in the infinite number of things that God does know that He would pay attention to me. And that's why that's the way it becomes, you see, ultimately personal. That God would make would take note of me, not only to know about me, but the reason He would know about me is or in order to bring about my well-being. His knowledge is motivated by His concern. And so we think about that in the context of our lives and our behavior. And there's a sense in which, at least maybe intellectually, a lot of people will go along with that. And so people will say sometimes, well, you know, the Lord knows my heart. The Lord knows my heart. And people make note of that. And they may even say that out loud, generally with the intent of justifying some failure, some weakness, or some lack of discipline. 
So they do something maybe that's short of what they ought to do, and or they fail, or maybe you know that the, the things didn't go the way they ought to do, and someone's hurting the whole thing. Well, well, God knows my heart. Yeah, I party a little bit, but God knows my heart. And, uh, and yeah, I'm not the best father in the world, but God knows my heart. And yeah, I curse a little bit, and I go out and, and live it up sometimes, but God knows my heart. I don't attend assembly all the time, and I don't pray like I should, and maybe I get angry too many times, but God knows my heart. Well, what do we mean by that? When we, when we voice this profound truth about God and about Jesus... Does it in any way if reflect upon us the way that we would use this truth for our own benefit? As if we know deep down inside that we're really better than we appear to be on the outside. Isn't that the way we're using that language and using that particular idea is that, well, I, I, gee, God knows that I'm better than I look. Is that what God knows? Is that what the omniscience of God certainly relates to us about? Well, Here's the truth. The truth is that God knows the truth. That's the truth. And that's the heart of the issue of this aspect of Jesus knowing all men is that God knows the truth. He knows every detail of my motivations. He knows whether or not we are better than we appear. And the reality, you see, of the fact that God knows everything prompts self-honesty and transparency and true repentance rather than rationalizing, you see, and arguing away for our own lack of diligence or discipline. So God's omniscience should never become a poor excuse for continued ungodliness. It should be the greatest motivation we could ever contemplate to live better in our lives and to strive to be more godly and more holy because God knows what's in us. He sees it. Now what we recognize is that that's frightening. It's frightening to contemplate that God knows and that Jesus knows because I will stand before the Lord in judgment. He is the one to whom I must give account. Hebrews chapter 4, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the vision of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him of whom we must give account. That passage I think we're probably somewhat familiar with. Certainly it's a passage that sometimes we read and talk about. We talk about the, the power of the Word of God, that it's powerful and can, uh, it's like a two-edged sword. And the Bible depicts the Word of God as a sword on more than one occasion. One thing I would notice about this passage, I think, that uh, provides some insight into the, is that the writer of Hebrews connects two things together here. And that is the Word of God and Jesus Himself or God Himself. The Word of God is living, and it pierces the division of the soul, and it is a discerner of the thoughts, and there is no creature hidden from His sight. You see, the one who's doing the looking is God Himself. And yet the Word of God is displayed here as that which opens the way or, op- or, or, or pierces through to the discerning of everything within us so that God knows exactly who we are. And the Word of God does that. That's one of the purposes of God's revelation. When Jesus talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit, He said the Holy Spirit was going to come in order to judge the world, in order to make known righteousness and unrighteousness, that the Word of God would discern. In the 90th chapter, of, in the 90th Psalm, the psalmist says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. And Job says, Does he not see my ways and account all my steps? And Jeremiah says, Can anyone hide himself? In secret places, so I shall not see him, says the Lord. Is there any place we can go to hide from God where he will not see? 
not only what we're doing, but even more specifically as we're talking about tonight, what's within us. So Jesus declares, and the Word declares repeatedly, that God knows. And that the ultimate implication of that, and the truth that's connected with that, is that He will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. So God's the one who can judge. And we uh, was even mentioning this morning someone about this aspect of judging and, and judgment um, and Jesus' role in that. You know what the, the, what the Apostle says in the book of Acts is that God has appointed judgment to take, to take place uh, through the person of Jesus Christ. And He made that known through resurrecting Him from the dead. That there's a point of day when Jesus will judge the whole world. Every person will come under the judgment of Christ. It's not only His kingdom, but it's His judgment seat that we will appear before. And how appropriate that is. Because Jesus is the one who knows all men. And so Jesus' omniscience is terrifyingly frightening, you see, when put in the context of men's disobedience or their attempt to hide what they do from God. Yet there's also a sense in which you see the, 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 the omniscience of Jesus is comforting. In fact, it's extremely comforting. Because Jesus knows my weaknesses. He knows my struggles. He knows what I think about myself when maybe nobody else can know what I think about myself. He knows if I have a yearning to be a better person and whether or not I'm really striving to do what is best and the obstacles that are in my way. In the second chapter of Hebrews, not this particular context both in chapter 2 and the passage we look at chapter 4 really has to do with Jesus' work as a high priest. But the principle remains the same and that is that Jesus is well qualified for the work that the Father has put him to do. For indeed, verse 16, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he has made, he has made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The writer of Hebrews is making a point about the flesh the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is qualified to be a priest for us in the spiritual realm because he has actually come in the flesh and he himself, notice the emphasis on the identity of Jesus he himself has suffered, he himself has been tempted and he is able to, get to, to aid those who are tempted because Jesus knows and then Hebrews chapter 4 he goes on talking again continually about this aspect of Jesus' priesthood, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us come therefore boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And I would suggest to you that the call for you and I to come boldly to the throne of grace is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ knows who we are. That He is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because He was tempted just as we have been tempted and yet He did not sin. He knows what it means to win the victory over sin, to engage sin on the battlefield of the flesh and be victorious. He knows what it means as well to face the different emotional struggles of dealing with sin in my own life and the life of others. Jesus knows what it means to be dismissed, to be misunderstood, to be hated, to be doubted. You see, to be, condes to be condescended, to be disappointed, to be lied about, mistreated. He knows all of that because He experienced it. Because He knows then, He can sympathize. 
because he knows he can supply a way of escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 for my temptation. Because he knows he can hear my prayer and even intercede from the standpoint of praying for me like he prayed for Peter that he would, you see, be able to survive the test. Peter says that God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. He knows when I'm trying. And when in the struggle you see I am being defeated. He knows my potential. He desired my contribution to his cause. And he wants me to be participant in the battle against evil in my life and the life of others. And that aspect of the omniscience of Jesus Christ is a clear indication of Jesus' love and his concern. So such knowledge, you see, helps me. Helps me be able to get up and fight the battle and involve myself in the struggle because I know that Jesus is knowing and watching everything that goes on. Thank you for your attention tonight. I think that these things that we've talked about can be helpful in several different ways in our life. Certainly in the context of faith, in the context of understanding who Jesus is. And that's sort of the approach I wanted to take and maybe did take and at least uh, as, we, as we went through this aspect of uh, Jesus knowing is that what John presents here is undeniable evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was unique, that he wasn't your ordinary person, that when he came on the scene claiming to be the Messiah of God, he could clearly indicate that to others. And that even in the very beginning of his ministry, in such subtle ways as simply telling someone, yeah, I know what you're all about, he was able to produce faith in the hearts of the unbelieving and the skeptical. And if that sign is enough, if that ability for Jesus to make known what he knows is enough to convince them, then it's enough to convince others as well. And maybe you as well, if you're skeptical about who Jesus is and about ultimately whether or not Jesus cares and what Jesus can do. And that goes along with sort of like how we ended the lesson. If Jesus knows me and Jesus has knowledge of every man, then that's based upon the fact that he loves every person. And he died for every person. And if you want to be a child of God, God knows it. And He understands, ultimately, what it takes to bring you about to believe in faith. And those things are contained within the very testimony that He has provided in His Word. So open your heart to what God says. Open your mind to what God has revealed. And understand that Jesus knows that you as well can be His child.